Namaste. My name is Saurabh Nanda and this is another episode of Such Conversations Matter. Well, today's guest is Mr. Robinder Sachdev. He's an international relations expert from India. And he is an expert on India-US relations, uh, some countries in the Middle East, India-Japan, India-Korea, um, and some countries in Western Europe. He's appeared more than 3,000 times in international media, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Asahi Shinbum in Japan. And you can watch him almost every third day on Z News, uh, India TV, uh, whenever they have debates about India-US or India-China relationships. On top of that, he does a lot of other things, a lot of social impact projects and so on. I met him uh, actually quite some time ago. In 2013, I did this small module where I had to teach Indian English to uh, his Japanese clients. And since then, I have been a, a great fan of his work. He's... So he recently started his campaign of Live and Let Live, which he believes should be the mantra for foreign relations. So let's talk more about that and a lot of other questions that I have for him and he's graciously agreed to you know just uh, be part of this interview so hi Robinder how are you well awesome as good as you maybe we have the same storm so all good so uh, Robinder sir I saw something very interesting in your profile when you shared uh, with me the other day that you are also an engineer so yes sir yeah <laughs> And yeah. being an engineer, I know every engineer in India has a very specific story how they got into engineering. So I would love to know that story of yours. Mine is, I think, a general story. I did like, uh, you know, the science subjects, you could say, in my school. And, uh, you know, the only options which were on the horizon were normally either go into medicine or go into engineering. Those were the two. So engineering was there, but I, I, I enjoyed biology also. So, you know, but uh, never wrote any exams for the medicine, for medical studies, so engineering. So, no, no big story in that. It was a regular story, I think. Uh, in those times, we never had any awareness of options out there. Uh, these were the only two, probably. And the third was army, yes, mm -hmm. you know. And also was, I was in Dehradun, so it was like going, getting into the mer Navy, Merchant Navy, Merchant Navy, you know, so sailor. So, those were few, but yeah. Oh, that's great. So how did you transition from an engineer, you know, a science, a person who loves science into international relations and becoming such an expert in so many different domains? I mean, see, uh, when I mean, okay, fine, fair enough. I always had a huge interest in foreign affairs or international relations. Uh, so I think reading a lot of newspapers, we never had anything else in our lives, you know, no net, no television, no nothing. The only thing was the hard printed newspapers one could read to know what is happening in the world outside. So yes, I had a, I mean, I had a good amount of interest in foreign affairs or international affairs. And uh, then I also had an interest in, you know, communications. Uh, you know, writing and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, even in my college, I mean, in my college, I was very active in so-called extracurricular activities. Okay, you know, whatever debate, drama, dumb charades, uh, charades, uh, those kind of mimes and stuff like that. So, yeah, so it, it has been an interest. And I think what happened over a period of time is that I worked in engineering. I worked in hardcore software development. I used to write software. And I used to also teach software design, system analysis, and stuff like that, right? But then I ended up 
doing this kind of software design and analysis for a political client very mm-hmm. early in my career okay which i which was a professional thing for me but it was a party the congress party in india for their some kind of databases and all okay so that's how i got more into the intersection of you know software engineering whatever you may say and public affairs mm-hmm. but then i was always into software and then i was in telecom i i, I worked in, in the telecom sector in the us and uh, i worked in the telecom sector and then i had my own startup also in the telecom sector in the us and but then in parallel to it while you know doing my day job in in the wireless industry in the evenings uh, you know uh, along with it i started the startup which was a wireless isp so that was the uh, sorry in the, the evenings were a political action grouping yes the day job was engineering you may say whatever it in addition to it you know kind of building a community just kind of talking about us india relations where mm-hmm. us and all and in that you know my earlier experiences with the congress with the bjp i worked with the bjp also in my district elections uh, i mean something again from a professional database uh, mm-hmm. uh, consulting kind of point of view mm-hmm. so we started this uh, organization to kind of develop on us india relations mm-hmm. so you know things started coming together plus also of course uh, when i went to the us i uh, i did my masters in international affairs yes very much and i also did a mba mm-hmm. so i think so therefore you know that all of those things kind of interconnected and came together and that's why i am perhaps where i am now that's very interesting and that is actually uh, there's a very curious observation here um, so a lot of engineers especially from india well <laughs> we are you know mass production producing engineers a lot of engineers from india they end up working uh, in other sectors altogether and most of those sectors they, those sectors happen by chance to them right so uh, for you it was international relations and uh, you know uh, political software uh, development and you decided very consciously okay let let me more focus a little bit more in this and start developing a career over there do you think that's a that's that's like uh, you know an inherent need for an engineer from india that chalo yaar let's do engineering but on the way on the way somewhere we'll find something better and we'll just move towards that do you think that's an inherent need that's an interesting observation that you're making actually i do think so hmm. i mean i think a lot of us who do our engineering look at it okay engineering to karni hi hai right it's like the nuts and bolts of life it's a graduation kind of thing right uske aage ahead of that yes getting into hardcore engineering or related or then you know into other fields especially management you know and then in management apparently you will have an advantage if you have an undergrad in engineering right so i think those are the thoughts which are kind of inherent uh, in a lot of us yes that engineering too is a must mm-hmm. right uh, though actually in my before along with my engineering i had also applied before the results came i had applied uh, at delhi university mm-hmm. for a for a b i think it would have been a bsc i would have uh, yes i would have applied for a bsc uh, but then when i was just filling because those times you don't know where you would get admission right so but i got the results from my in pantanal regional college mm. before any of that mm. so who knows 
So another uh, another related question here, uh, Robindu sir, about so when we have this inherent need, like engineers, I, I consciously understand when I you know moved away from my American software engineering job and jumped into this chaotic world of career consulting. So I consciously knew what I was doing. And do you think most of the engineers also realize this, that uh, engineering is just the first step? We are going somewhere else. In India, it is just that engineering is so hallowed and it is it has so many inherent advantages of being called an engineer that it is important to do engineering first and then get wherever you want to. Yeah, I very much do think so. I mean, like you also... I mean, though at the same time, you know, see, many folks, it depends how you plan your careers. I mean, you being a career consultant this is exactly, I think, what you're looking at sometimes. You know, uh, a lot of folks kind of decide and say, I mean, they're pretty clear that they will continue into engineering, more or less, right? Mm. Then there are some who are pretty, you know, wanderers, so to say, who may wander uh, around, etc. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and uh, so essentially, it's, I think, Further engineering or further management, you know, management areas also, I would say, remain in the same, are not this other kind that you're talking, you know, getting into communications or international relations or some other, you know, totally uh, unrelated field because management is still, you know, you're managing engineering, let's say, right? Right. So, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So, it, it is the, yeah, it's the other, the meandering ones, you know, who discover whatever they do. Great, great. So one one question for this uh, question set and then we'll move to the next one. Being a career consultant, it's my job to tell parents and students, you know, how they should design your career as you rightly pointed out. So if somebody wants to get to the stage that you are at right now, you know, an international uh, relations expert, how should they plan their career if they are, you know, let's say in high school in India right now, 10th, 11th, what should they do right now? I mean, in that sense, the classical thing is that, fair enough, be aware of the world, read. I mean, actually, now there's a whole load of information all around you. That's the irony. But anyway, you know, read or, you know, absorb information. Check out, make an information diet for yourself, right? If this is what you want to do, right? Through that information diet, learn learn more about the subject. Be curious. Mm-hmm. Second, write. Maybe write more. Okay, whatever. Uh, and then, of course... Getting into college, sure enough, if it's that classical thing, sure, pick up international affairs. Or rather, I would say just pick up economics. Mm-hmm. Because everything kind of, you know, on many things, you know, economics kind of, economics bridges quantitative and qualitative. True. Right. And uh, that is the key that you need in anything that, uh, if I'm talking international relations or a lot of other things that we'll talk about, right? Mm-hmm. It's the or creativity or creative thinking. So it's the so economics in your bachelor's because I, and then maybe yes for masters get into IR mm, okay mm, mm. that could be the academic thing apart from this get involved with organizations get involved with initiatives uh, pick up a cause pick up a cause uh, I mean in the world that you are interested in start networking create a movement create a campaign around that I mean that's what I've done so it's, it's right. Uh, also at times because it's fun you pick up something which is of passion to you build a worldwide community Mm. on any you know and that gets you you know key is to start working across cultures with people from different countries different backgrounds uh, understand them and in the process discover your own self also I mean there's a bunch of things out there but these could be some things that you know if you're seriously looking at uh, 
career in international relations or international affairs or these kind of areas or even civil services you know for your exams or i mean international business mm. I mean, all this is not ir is uh, moving away is away now from what international relations i think once upon a time people would think mm-hmm. uh, or it it may still be there but another way to international affairs is now you know everything international international business geopolitics it's all that you know trade uh, trade barriers advantages right. eco- economic development that's an amazing insight uh, robinder sir and uh, thank you so much for that because it's a very unique insight uh, which students don't get to uh, you know understand so my next question actually comes from something you said you said study economics because it might form the cornerstone for your you know career journey into international relations as well now in the modern world today economists or like today's economists they are considered uh, the modern world philosophers because ideally we don't have you know those philosophers which we uh, still read about in the you know early 19th century and all those people but today's economists are considered philosophers do you think that's an appropriate uh, distinction which is made uh, for them do you think economists should be the philosophers i mean that's an interesting question i would actually disagree with that and agree with that if you do your economics okay you what is an economist i would say an economist would be someone they can be two kinds of economists one would be that would go more into academia and research and all of that mm. okay or in bureaucratic jobs fair enough you can call call them economists but there are a bunch of these people let's say if they go you do your bachelor's in economics and then you do your mba what are you i mean uh, you will be an you will apply economics right sometimes it may be said in some definition oh he or she is a economist but otherwise you are not an economist okay you are a, let's say manager or entrepreneur or executive so it depends which 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 category of the people who done studies in the economics which category of the work profile are they in Mm-hmm. now that that being said the philosophers yes so of this category right which is into academia teaching or research or you know development and bureaucratic and international organizations let's say those right your your economists with the world bank kind of thing right that category of folks i could say that yes uh, could be looked as philosophers also because economics is i mean uh, is the base of society and where i maybe not disagree but i'll remind you it's not that economics is the base now and philosophers of economics are out there who was karl marx hmm. marxism is entirely based on economics hmm. okay the idea of the base and the superstructure marx was a marxism is a most scientific philosophy right it has not worked uh, or it has not been applied actually or it mm. has been applied by different people mm. but all of you know uh, i mean the marxism and the scientific understanding of marxism is extremely useful logically out there but yes now things are even more in our day to day living political context uh, uh, of course society always i mean society is based upon economics you need that and you need philosophy yes okay? uh so yeah Great. so that's where we are but now definitely is yes, economics everywhere is becoming more predominating mm. you know even diplomacy diplomacy is this economic diplomacy 
Okay. Okay. So we do, I do economic diplomacy, right? Promoting economic relations. Different forms of diplomacy are emerging. Cultural mm -hmm. diplomacy, science diplomacy. We come to all of that, right? So economics uh, is, you know, kind of getting involved in everything. Competition between nations, uh, competition between, I mean, supply chains, the economics of your supply chains. Mm -hmm. The, so that's the very economics of your wages, I mean, yeah. the wages, demand suppliers, it's all out there, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I mean, so everything, uh, we've, we've kind of moved everything from, you know, uh, all the other aspects like cultural diplomacy. Uh, Peru is the gas considers itself the gastronomical uh, capital of the world, so they have food diplomacy. Um, and we have kind of, you know, shifted everything towards more about the monetary incentive. I would just want to add one more thing in this mm. overarching that I was saying that. Yes, but, yes. you know, there is a fallacy happening here. Mm. The fallacy happening is that, I think probably that again goes back to economics and deep philosophers. The fallacy which is happening is that society is not a market. So exactly. I am not saying that, you know, the role of society or of a nation, you, one should look at it as a market. No. Society is much more than a market. And that's where, you know, your philosoph other philosophies and a lot of other things come in. But what's happened is that the importance of this market for whatever the economics has been heightened. So I would say correspondingly, these areas must be heightened, heightened also. So I'm not mm. saying, because that's a trend sometimes we are seeing that everything is looked at from the prism of economics and as a market, which it should not be. Exactly, exactly. So, and, and in fact, I mean, that is why a lot of people praise, uh, you know, Keynesian uh, economics and all that. But that is great. That came from the early depression, the Great Depression, 1929. But um, the thing is that you cannot measure everything monetarily. And that's where my next question also comes in from, actually. So this is a question one of my friends asked me that you should definitely ask this question. Um, do you think that WTO is still relevant? WTO is relevant still in the sense that even if a, if a deconstruction of the WTO has to happen, it will start by saying, okay, let us kind of dissolve the WTO or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's important, right? Uh, or, okay, uh, that's one scenario. On the other hand, yes, WTO still is important. It is holding up some fabric or, mm. you know, agreements, even if they're being flouted, people are thinking at least before flouting them and after flouting them, they can use it to give signals to other countries, right? Like the US is imposing tariffs, which are not supposed to be there. If WTO wasn't there, none of these benchmarks would be there, mm. right? Mm. In, a, in, in, ideal, in a theoretical world, none of these benchmarks would be there if the WTO was not there. So, how would countries signal to each other? Right now, let's say WTO acts like a benchmark, right? If I want to express my unhappiness with you, or if I want to kind of, yes, whatever, I, I, I change that benchmark, and in that arises a dispute, mm -hmm. right? Because you say this, and then we go to the WTO. Mm. So, but then, so, what do you do when, when big, the biggest nations which virtually control WTO, like the US, they, they impose really strong sanctions officially and unofficially or indirectly to smaller countries are you know developing countries like mexico that they threaten them that they will they'll kick you out of the trade agreement and the north agreement trade agreement if you do not start stop or like mexico actually uh, initiated a process where they didn't want to import the junk food which is produced in america 
but the us just clearly stomped over them told them that these are the other you know repercussions that you will uh, suffer if you do anything of this sort so how does the wto play its role over there when somebody is just literally dictating the terms no the, the role the wto plays at present is that it depends uh, who what terms are being dictated are those terms being dictated outside the wto let's say standards which had been set for between those two countries uh if i mean if if it's not related to that then it's a free market man yeah. you know it's a free market the us says you know what my my beautiful producers of burgers need to sell they are the best burgers in the world and mexico you need so it's that's a political trade off and mexico you need to buy these and then i will give you these this things so small nations will have to kind of live with it there is no other way and countries are getting more and more aggressive in trying to demand what they want mm. okay uh, this whole world you know the behavior is changing of governments the, the, the aggression is changing mm-hmm. so smaller nations will have to comply there is no other way out okay sure uh, otherwise sure if wto were empowered enough sure they can take the case to wto fight it out if the big power loses it may it may you know roll back but if the big power loses it may just simply ignore you like what happened with philippines hmm. philippines went to the i think it's the hague the un yeah. convention on laws of seas you know for the islands which china had occupied philippines won the case there but china is still sitting no. period so 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 those things uh, will happen uh, more and more on sanctions though i will say there's another very important if you're talking sanctions the others are let's say uh, these are okay see the sanctions like iran is under okay or north north korea is under or even russia is under what is the core of those sanctions which the U- us us imposes mm. the fundamental core where they have the power pivot is the financial system the swift right system in the banking okay so us says okay russia if you do this i'll do this i'll put you under you you know attack crimea you are yeah. under sanctions what does that mean yeah what means that what it means is that russian organizations cannot use the interbanking world system to transfer their money to buy or sell hmm. so you come down on your knees that's what's happening with iran that's what's happening with north korea right so if you want to avoid the sanctions the world has to have an alternative swift system true So yeah I completely agree with that and I think probably that's one of the checks uh, that Russia has and then it does other thing to well empower itself now talking about Iran it's an interesting thing uh, there's you know for the past few years there's been growing um, let's say you know there's been growing sympathy towards Iran from the European Union they want to do more and more trade with Iran because they consider the sanctions imposed on Iran of an unfair nature well because of the geopolitics which us is involved with the middle east and so on so if you so even if you have other major nations in the play like major economies of the world you know germany france uh, spain and italy for that matter if they are saying one thing even then because you're the biggest economy if you do something again doesn't the wto come into question again like if if everyone is just doing going to do their own thing either you empower it or you just agree to the fact that we need a new wto why is none of that happening why is the empowerment doesn't happen no see the wto is not meant for these kind of uh, let's say flux dynamics in the world mm-hmm. 
okay the wto is meant and made for very specific bureaucratic okay for purposes of logistics you know quantitative uh, definitions the wto has no ability and no role to kind of you know see what us is doing and why is it facing the eu and all that role is actually typically should be for the united nations mm. now why the un is not playing its role on those matters is another matter but coming back to the wto so but yes within these uh, you know threats and uh, sanctions being announced and all within these if some are flouting what the wto let's say conventions are saying between any two of the countries or any three of the countries then yeah sure three four of them three four of european countries and iran could together approach the wto and say that guys this is what the us is doing wrong hmm. right if that were to be so so it's for these countries to then identify what are the what is the matter that they can take to court so very interesting over there um so when it comes to individual countries and individual countries have taken a lot of uh, you know steps in that direction so in the 60s when the middle east really realized okay our oil is really valuable they started working towards uh, uh, opec right the organization called opec and recently uh, we can see china trying to do the obor um one belt one road initiative or the rcep which is the extended version of asean now the thing is if everyone starts making their own groups is that a more beneficial picture or it just adds to more chaos if you believe in free markets you believe in entrepreneurship then you believe in the fact that let ideas bloom let there be thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs let there be thousands and thousands of initiatives let there be thousands and thousands of networks and groupings the better amongst the amongst them will maybe make partnerships or survive or compete i mean they will evolve but you have more right mm-hmm. in a very broad sense i would say that uh and each would i mean they'll be always trying to reach some kind of a dynamic equilibrium you know when they realize that within the group they can achieve something fine let's see what maximum creativity can they innovate i mean mm-hmm. idea should be that these networks or these clusters which are forming should be you know should be innovating something should be creating something so, you know more technologies more socio economic models more models of getting people out of poverty more you know better health among the fishermen of a coastal region whatever be it right so mm-hmm. if, let's say some countries collaborate deeper in some areas the better it is i think okay uh now what maybe what you're implying is that if they try and form such groupings but kind of you know exclusionary nature that okay we will not include some will be only us uh then to that i would say that you see there'll be multiple such uh, new enclaves which will emerge which mm-hmm. are emerging okay so it will be competition it'll be there i mean it's okay i think it's good i would rather say it's good it's a churn it's good okay that's a great insight uh, ravindra sir so my question is basically yes so more chaos gets to more innovation and we find better solutions um is there a formula which you know nations can follow uh, to make a cluster which is let's say uh, which will have a longer shelf life and which will be beneficial to beneficial more or less equally to everyone involved all the stakeholders inside and outside it depends you know there have been such uh, you mean uh, groupings of nations True. right is that what you mean yes okay 
uh, sure see there there will be there can be layers to it one can be yes there should be grouping of na- nations which are neighbors to each other mm-hmm. right so in that case like let's say sark whatever was or or the bimstek are definitely you know one platforms kind of a thing which should create something then the next level is a regional level and the next is of course the global level right so uh probably i would say definitely yes one has to be extremely or much stronger in your first neighborly you know groupings mm-hmm. because those are geographic facts right mm-hmm. your logistics are close somewhat if not similar not but you understand each other culture maybe right or business style uh, informal trade is more between neighbors right mm-hmm. so much a lot happening so i think the first layer is to you know kind of the regional uh, block mm-hmm. should be maximized without doubt mm-hmm. amongst nations now as examples of this uh i mean uh, we could look somewhere in europe maybe uh, if there were any grouping of nations you know who kind of worked other than the eu i mean eu is a bigger one right mm-hmm. i would say oh definitely i think uh, the scandinavian nations or the nordic nations they have a very close uh, trade and free movement agreement then the exactly. Bal- the balkan states estonia latvia and lithuania they are uh, very yes. close uh, australia new yes. zealand is a good example then thailand malaysia singapore and indonesia is a good example japan south Absolutely. korea taiwan is an amazing example uh, i would not uh, you know i would not put japan south korea taiwan in that <laughs> model because uh, they are all independent of each other japan is doing its own you know beating its own drum south korea its own drum mm. Uh, but yeah they are they are working with each other but they have they are not like the cluster sense like uh, the lithuanians and all the other nordic you know or australia new zealand even, yeah yeah right but yes yeah so right so these are the different kinds of flavors or combinations which are out there hmm. so i mean that's a fair thing they should be doing more i would say. i would say they should do more and more so one interesting question arises over here <clears throat> i mean so this is an this is not a new thing you know collaborating together to uh, have mutual uh, development but it has been seen in the history that such clusters when they when they are formed in more developed uh, societies or parts of the world they are sustainable they are long standing but when something like this happens let's say you, you uh, we talked about sark a little or let's t- let's talk about africa or even south america they tried making a lot of uh, you know clusters over there but they don't necessarily work that well as they work in these developed parts of the world what what do you think are the main challenges that developing countries face when trying to make such clusters i think the challenge which they face is the fact that they are developing countries <laughs> right so each country has so much of challenges within itself hmm. right and has to modernize so many things has to create so many standards of logistics customs you know technology uh, tracking and all of that you see that uh, they are they are not at that stage of sophistication in a way and neither are their neighbors so their interoperability of standards you know testing certification because here a lot of this business trade and all requires standardization certificates testing labs you know which certify the product quality the chamber of commerce is the origin certificate whatever so all of those things and systems have been smoothened out in the developed world mm. right so within the country. so when a country now engages with another country also which has its systems you know smoothened out and uh, made out then they can be quicker in harmony in terms of transactions 
Mm-hmm. Whereas developing countries, we to upgrade so much of our own infrastructure, right? And I'm meaning even you know like IT platform for let's say whatever you know uh, the customs, for example, right? Or logistics or, uh, or such matters. And then our neighbors also, they're also not sophisticated that way that we can quickly you know this. So I think that's one big reason that the state of the infrastructure of the cluster countries, but. In our case of India, for SARC and all the reasons have been totally, totally political, nothing to do with those things. Mm. If uh, we did not have these political challenges, I think, in fact, uh, mm. see, notwithstanding that your systems are different, you can still do so much of informal trade between each other, informal economy, mm. not necessarily going through the you know, channels, which would have generated or which could generate a lot of economic growth, mm. right? In any case, half or a good percentage of the economy is in the unorganized sector in India, which we cannot even track. So, so India SARC is, I think, a different kettle of fish. Uh, but then each, uh, you know, each grouping has its own flavor. Mm-hmm. So, so you think uh, that we like countries need to reach a certain level of development first, and only then they can, uh, you know, kind of aspire to, let's say. Well, in a way, like it's it's like the Maslow's, uh, you know, hierarchy <laughs> that if you want to get towards self-actualization, you need to first of all satisfy all your basic needs. No, sure, uh, I'm saying something slightly different, right? See, remember, I'm also talking. I'm talking about the measured economy and the unmeasured, non-measured economy. Mm. So, nations which are developing mm. can do a lot of trade among each other, but that would be a lot more in the unmeasured parts of it, right? Whereas what you for us to understand, either we learn to measure that unmeasured part, right, or we grow the measured part. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that, you see, this measured part, mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, you'll say success of the grouping is what annual trade between India and Nepal was $100 million, okay? Mm-hmm. But what about the unmeasured trade, which was like, let's say, $500 million, right? So your matrix of mm-hmm. checking or gauging the success, I mean, needs to factor that in. That's what I'm saying. So, why are economists not coming out of our country or developing countries in general who talk about the informal economy and create models to measure it? I mean, there has been certain success, even if you, you know, go from Amartya Sen to uh, Mr. Banerjee now, um, they are talking about poverty alleviation. So, they understand the various aspects surrounding it. But why hasn't there been, you know, success towards this direction? Uh, um, one, I think it's it's a very complicated or very you know there are too many interlinkages in this whole you know in this whole uh, study area that we are talking. Okay, there are too many variables, and many of the variables are of course with the government and the government bureaucratic you know movement and all. So I think uh, you're able. What you need are maybe you know see economics economists. I would think that the ones who take an initiative maybe can make some breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. So probably more, um, probably so what one way to answer it would be that probably not enough economists have been entrepreneurial in their thinking or approaches to bring what they want as solutions or push their solutions. So, or there's been a lack of communication, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, effectiveness of communication or the message. Uh, to whosoever, I mean, so that means they've not conveyed or maybe they've conveyed and the leaders or the people who matter have not listened. So fair enough, that's there, but that doesn't mean that you don't try again and different channels or whatever. 
So be pushy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so probably, quote unquote, economists have not been pushy. That could be one, you know, uh, way to, to talk about it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would think that would be, to my mind, if you ask me, the bottom line would be this. Right. Uh, not push show that there is a you know push back from the established systems and all but then you have to build coalitions build partnerships build partnerships and see that how you can bring change make partnerships with the media I mean for example right mm-hmm. or whatever again get your message out mm-hmm. and show the roadmap mm-hmm. and then show a roadmap and in that sense I do very much like this randomized uh, controlled trials which uh, uh, Abhijit Banerjee, right? He, yeah, he is yeah. doing that. So that's a very nice, simple thing to show you guys. Okay, there is the control, and this is the intervention. Mm. See the mm. change. Mm. So I'm, in fact, I'm a strong votary of that. I'm a strong mm. votary of that practice of randomized control trials to you know show and bring. Uh, uh, I mean, what one can. You know, yes. Great. So. Quickly moving on, uh, Ravinder, I think because every topic is so huge, we can have hours and hours discussion of it. Um, I would like to talk to the other thing that you mentioned earlier, that the biggest world organization uh, we know is the UN. So last year I was in Japan and uh, Horiya-san, who was actually uh, very instrumental in a lot of uh, UN dealings, he was almost a secretary general as well at one point. Um, I asked him this question during lunch because that's the only time I could get access to him. And I asked him, sir... Is the UN still relevant? Do we need the UN? And he very calmly said, as if, you know, this question has been asked to him a million times already. He very calmly said that, I understand why you're asking this question, but if we don't have the UN, what else do we have? Because the countries need to come together at some platform and talk to each other. If we don't have the UN, there is nothing else existing. Do you believe in the same uh, viewpoint, or do you think that we can do something about it? No, I absolutely believe in it. I, I mean, the UN has to be. The UN has to be, and okay, what has to be of the UN is another matter. Much more has to change. We'll get into that. But uh, the countries, the society, we need to kind of, you know, we need to live and let live together. Okay. In fact, that's a huge global campaign that we are running, yeah. live and let live. Okay. But separate. So all countries have to coexist. There has to be at least some notional uh, idea of some recourse to something somewhere, even if it doesn't work. Right. It at least mm. creates a psychological balance in the world mm. that nations adhere to, mm. at least, or the majority of them. Right. And uh, we are not in a complete lawless uh, society, so to say, right? So, United Nations has to absolutely, absolutely exist. It has to change its, yes, it has to change many things. That's another matter. It has to change its, uh, maybe even the mandates, because whatever mandates it has, no, not change. I mean, it has to bring tooth to the mandates that it's supposed to serve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to change some of its working styles, maybe internal culture of the organization also, certainly. Hmm. Maybe change some leadership also. Maybe it's become too bureaucratic also. Maybe some of it has become a self-serving, you know, organization just to exist in order to exist kind of thing, you know. 
So many of those things are there, but then on the other hand, there are many things like, you know, it has to do, I mean, this whole thing which is happening in the world today, where is the United Nations? This, I mean, when else should the freaking United Nations, you know, play a role other than the times we are in right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's so many things the United Nations should be doing right now. So uh, very interesting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ravinder, very yes. interesting. Uh, you you talked about the right thing. I mean, this is the right tipping point. COVID-19 has provided us that tipping point the world was maybe waiting for so that some change could happen. Do you think organizations like the WHO, WTO, UN, which were like formed like 80 years ago, do you think uh, they can finally use this time to change themselves, demand for more teeth or powers and uh, get a lot of rogue world leaders into line? Do you think that's possible? Uh, yes, I think it is possible, but it will take some time. It will take some time. Uh, the nature of these organizations will change without doubt now. You know, the consequence of the COVID thing and the consequence of what China is doing in the world today, right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So the nature of these organizations will change because each of them has questions which are relevant to their area. Like for WTO, the whole issue of trade, right? For the UN, actually, and the UN Security Council, the whole issue of security, okay. Uh, for WHO, the issue of health, you know, the WHO will reform out of this crisis, right. But to what extent and all, so that change has to be brought or pushed. Uh, but uh, these organizations will change. The UN, I'm little, uh, you see, the issue is China is, you know, one big player which is creating a bunch of problems in the world today is China, right. And China is also in the UN Security Council. So the whole idea of how the UN will now revamp hmm. is going to be stuck. Right. Okay. So, in so fact, the very UN will become maybe uh, more stuck now, you know, because China will veto anything right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what the UN has to do is to kind of uh, craft a role for itself in this whole crisis. It should absolutely immediately do it, I would say. The others would be impacted would and would change yes hmm. so one of please please uh, entertain one of my fantasies here Ravinder. so i've i've uh, been uh, you know for the last uh, two weeks actually i've been thinking on these lines and one thing that comes to my mind and i already believe in this a lot actually that the world has enough money already all right we have enough resources we have enough academic research like proven scholarly academic research to solve a lot of problems that the world has the basic necessities of healthcare, food, and education. We have enough of that. Like throughout the world, we have enough of all of that. Don't you think there should be a central organization in the world which just says to every country, you give food, education, and healthcare of this particular standard to each of your citizens. We will give you the money. There is one central organization which guarantees, you know, all these three things. So you have three central organizations. Do you think such a thing can be possible? Because that is what is the need of the art. Sure. Interesting question. Fair enough. The challenge is where will the central organization get the money from? So let's say the Ministry of Health in India (laughs) just (laughs) says, this is my budget and the rest is supplemented or whatever is from there. But the standards are met. Do you think it's possible using technology maybe or something? It is possible using technology and using, let's say, mechanical thinking or systems thinking. Mm. Societies are human and human are 
variables, right? So it will not work. It will not work. I mean, but in a systemic uh, formula, definitely yes. I mean, see what this the way it would work is that this could stimulate a discussion and newer thinking on how to make some reforms in whatever the president is happening, right? See, sometimes you can pick up ideas, you know, moonshots. Mm. You know that moonshot may or may not happen. But what that moonshot does or can do is that it shakes up the status quo or it pushes or nudges or gives another direction. So this can be something because then, again, messaging, then, you know, when you're talking to somebody who's a decision maker, who will say, nah, yeah, this should not be, then say, okay, fine, if it not be, then what can be? Mm-hmm. Right. You, I mean, yes, uh, what can be? Okay, how? So that will shake the uh, person into at least rethinking or refreshing the way he, they are doing what they're doing currently. Mm-hmm. So this, so systems thinking can be a good, you know, method to point out an ideal scenario, so to say, in a way, mm-hmm. right, and uh, ask people to work towards that roadmap at least, you know, of right. the outcomes. Right. Great insight. So we're going to move the conversation slightly to like from individual countries to more, uh, sorry, from big clusters that we're talking about of countries to individual countries now. Uh, Robin, I'm sure in your uh, career, you have seen you know, a lot of uh, things which you probably never expected, you were surprised by them. Do you think, uh, is there any, uh, you know, instant that you can think of when some country's decision really surprised you? Has there been such an instant in your life which you're like, oh my God, what does what just happened? I didn't expect that. Hmm, interesting. I would think, yeah, there ha- may have been. There may have been, you know, when something happens or a country's decision. Hmm. Uh, my God, what happened? Or probably I'll say no, no, not surprised. I would say, yeah, interesting. Oh, cool, mm. interesting. And I'll see maybe what you know ramifications it has. But maybe not surprised. Like, mm. oh, oh, how could this? Oh, okay. Probably no, not that. Or if it's something comes to mind, I'll let you know. But I'll think, <laughs> yeah, as of now, I don't think, you know. So do you I think mean, you're... there have been many things? Yeah, there have been many things, but. Uh, Sure, they're surprising enough, but not wow, wow. Okay. So you think your research and, you know, enough uh, knowledge gathering kind of help you, okay, okay, this might happen, there's a chance, maybe the probability is too low, but it might happen. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, and I would think that it's not only my my where I'm now, but I think this has been somewhat uh, me all along, always mm-hmm. kind of, mm-hmm. you know, whenever whatever I've seen, like, let's say, you know, India tested the Pokhran, uh, the Pokhran 2 in 98, mm. US imposed sanctions on India. Mm. Okay, fine. Mm. Japan also imposed sanctions, by the way, mm. right? Mm. Okay. 9-11, yes, 9-11 was one, you okay. know, like, uh, but that was one, something by the government, but something like a 9-11. And then, <coughs> of course, a 26-11 in Bombay. Right. So such, you know, which hit close mm. home, you know, mm-hmm. because I was in the US when 9-11 happened. I used to live there. So it was like close home. Mm-hmm. And then when Bombay happened, I was in Bombay on that very day when the Bombay attacks happened. Okay. In fact, I was at the Oberoi Hotel having a coffee at 6 p.m. and then came to the airport. Oh my God. And I think eight o'clock, 9 o'clock, the terrorists stuck out there anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, actions of nations, not much surprising, you know. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So, if if nations, uh, which are these big social uh, systems that we are living with, they are kind of predictable. So, if if nations are predictable, uh, and all these think tanks get their money from that, you know, economic think tanks and political think tanks, then with all this knowledge, why is there a so to put it simply, why is there a lack of decision making? <laughs> you know, with all this information available, and people are predictable, and because people are predictable, right, right, you uh, rightly said, round nations are predictable. When we can see this predictability, we know what's going to happen. Then why is there this lack of decision making uh, of decisions? which which can impact you know communities and societies at large why don't those decisions happen at the right time or when they're needed the most or something like that i think to a large extent uh, maybe it is not known what is going to happen hmm. when maybe even if you say that nations are predictable or some things are predictable no doubt those are trend lines that you see in hindsight right you see okay this was happening so this will continue so on a macro maybe you know uh, there may be a trend line but what's happening in the micro the day to day things how they're interplaying with each other right i think that's something that you don't know and see what is interacting or playing out with one another and what is the next emerging out of that and then how next is iterating with that mm. okay so those micro you know whatever is happening is different and i think uh, that's that's what is difficult to predict and that's what i think economists or as you're saying think tanks and all keep gathering the knowledge they try and track and that's what in a way is the field of you know risk analysis of country risk mm-hmm. uh, country risk uh, you know based upon which the debt firms make their debt ratings or whatever etc right so the risk uh, the risk profile of one kind Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, as to what can be done, it's uh, it, it has to be seen. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Then, in some context, it can be also seen as what is implementation. You know, the mm-hmm. governments you may have schemes on paper which are great, but their implementation does not happen. Why does that not happen? That's a big one. But I'll give an example of something in the current sense of decision making. To my mind, let's say the COVID thing. Right now, the crisis happening in India. The government has been coming out with very clear numbers that we've done this many beds or we've transported these many migrant labors from point A to point B, etc. Right. Mm. But at the same time, we see that a lot of what they're saying is not happening. You know, I think why that happens is that the political masters give the orders that something should be done. Mm. The bureaucrats, exactly as you're saying, they gather the numbers, they mm. gather the statistics. Now, the point is the statistics that they have with them may not be enough, are not enough. Mm. Okay, do they, I mean, I don't think they have statistics of how many slum dwellers, maybe, you know, fair enough, they would have some ideas on RV and all. But many of these things are not on papers, are not known. So, but what bureaucrats have to do, they have to take a decision. Mm. So, they look at the paper, what they have, and they say, okay, we have this much and we will do this. Mm. So, that is the order that they pass down. Now, when that order goes down, mm. whatever is as per the order is mm. being implemented. But what I think happens is that the order does not have enough data about or knowledge about the unorganized, unknown, the bosses who are in the dark. Mm. So they don't address that at all. Mm. But on their papers, then they are able to say, yes, we've done this. This scheme has been 90% successful. Right. So... 
I think that's one big reason of this, you know, incomplete implementation of whatever is designed. Other than the fact that the implementation of the organized sector initiative itself may not be efficient, mm. may not itself mm. happen to be seen. That's one drop. But a bigger drop inside see here, people and things which are just unaccounted for. Mm. You, you know, for example, in this whole thing, what about the homeless or people who live on the streets? When demonetization happens, the government says, okay, everyone do this, go there. What about the people on the streets? Millions. Where would they go? But since they were not in those files of what's yeah. to be, there was nothing as to what's to be done with them maybe, right? I'll give you another example. What about, and pardon this, the sex workers who work in brothels? See, and many of them are kept in slave life conditions. Right. It is known. Yeah. So, supposing some worker had been working many years and all and she wouldn't go, also she is building up money in her own room, in her own pocket. 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 rupees. Because I'm just imagining they wouldn't mm. be able to go to the bank. Right? In mm. normal. Mm. Now suddenly mm. this demonstration happens. What happens to the money that she has saved up? And she has nothing else. And there might be again, I would say, probably millions of such souls in this country. Or anywhere in the world. So these are the things which are left out. Mm. So what governance or administration has to do is has to kind of, you know, uh, uh, go out, get more information, more data, more basic data, at least raw data. Uh, why do you think? Okay, yeah. So why do you think we don't yeah. get this data? I mean, uh, NGOs today are becoming more and more accountable. I'm not saying they're all accountable uh, or they're good and transparent, but they gather a lot of data. So we have agencies which gather data. Why? And, and, and if we don't gather accurate data, how are we even going to think of achieving the SDGs goal by 2030? So why doesn't it happen? Maybe the state is not, administration is not efficient enough. Okay. Uh, maybe I think in India actually also we need bureaucratic reform. Mm. The IAS are a great service, but probably, you know, I mean, uh, we need more of the IAS officers. Maybe they, they should be more, you know, they need more manpower. They cannot handle this bigger load. I mean, this, look at the size of the country and mm. how many IAS officers do we have total mm. in the country? I don't know will be minuscule, right? So it's in the early thousands, yeah. yeah. in the early thousands, maybe 5,000, 7,000, huh? wow. Around 25, so, 28, yeah. <laughs> Okay, make it 50,000. Yeah. Okay, make it 100,000. Okay. And uh, have them empowered or mm -hmm. enabled. So I think that's one. Because there is too much of, you know, workload probably, I would think. Mm -hmm. And uh, second, also maybe being not professional enough in our work ethics okay not really you know looking to do completely what's to be done not just kind of glossing over you know with, okay fine this number that number without being you know uh, honest and diligent mm. on the data mm. okay. uh, so maybe we need to you know show that okay. so but so, these are kind of tactical or such issues yeah which should be there so, I mean, clearly there is there is this big uh, disconnect between, uh, you know, legislature and executive in that particular manner. I mean, it, yeah, fine. It, it looks very good in Delhi, but the moment it leaves the Delhi borders, <laughs> it just goes haywire. Um, what is India's image abroad? How do foreigners 
perceive India? How has it changed uh, from, let's say, the 90s uh, till now? I would say it has changed. It has changed. It has changed quite a lot. In the 90s and all, probably India was not known much uh, till, till late 90s in a big picture sense, I would say. Other than, yeah, great land, ancient land of wisdom, Gandhiji and some, you know, philosophers out of India, those kind of things. Mm. Uh, and maybe a land of snake charmers and stuff like that. I think till the 90s, it was something like that, you know. Mm. Uh, it started changing after around 2000, I think, partly. And uh, and then a bit more. Then it started because India's economy also started picking up. So the world started taking notice of India a bit more. Mm-hmm. And the IT world also started growing. And due to Y2K, you know, Indian IT got a good entry into the U.S. Right. And I mean, everything else in the IT industries, I think, was triggered by the Y2K. Uh, you know, convenience of being work, able to work across boundaries and remote help and stuff like that. So that added, you know, the IT. So the, the image of IT and a good uh, economy growing, that kind of started happening. Uh in the earlier years, definitely before the 2000s, of course, India was seen much more as a socialist kind of a country mm. uh, in the Russian camp, so to say, Soviet camp, non-aligned, you know, carrying its own solo flag. Mm. Around 2000 onwards, I think it started changing uh, to, yes, a more uh, open economy also. We, we had liberalization in 91 starting, so by 2000, it was more known mm. little. So, uh, so the image started changing from being, you know, out in the boonies to something, okay, fine, an emerging country and mm-hmm. a positive and a growth and these many youth population and potential of India, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kept growing uh, nicely. The U.S.-India deal, nuclear deal brought India much closer to the U.S. And I mean, the world noticed mm-hmm. why the U.S. had signed that deal with India, you mm-hmm. see. So that changed India's image mm. that, okay, the U.S. felt that uh, India is important enough to, you know, change uh, mm. or to wave off the sanctions, mm. the nuclear sanctions that India had. So, so India started to... Rong, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm cutting it short here because this is, uh, you know, very interesting and you were instrumental, uh, one of the main people, you know, in getting the India-U.S. deal, uh, well, on track. Uh, and US-India became very close at that time. Do you think we still enjoy the same closeness with the US? And do you think that India-US collaboration can stabilize the world today? Well, China is the main antagonist in this equation. But uh, do you think an India-US, uh, you know, closer uh, alliance can stabilize the world in a better way today? Fair enough. So we've jumped a lot from, we've jumped, I think, from 2009 to 2020. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, U.S.-India relations, broadly speaking, are growing, will keep growing. <clears throat> There's a lot of commonality of interests and commonality of facts. Uh, we've got a large Indian diaspora there living, and many of them are very closely connected with the families and in even their own business and professions back home in India. So that's a big, big bridge we have. English speaking both countries, large number of Indian students go to the U.S. for higher studies or, I mean, at the undergrad levels. So that's a huge number. 
American culture is something I think broadly people in India like. Okay, in a particular sense, uh, at least Hollywood and all, even the commonest or lefts in mm. India would enjoy seeing Hollywood movies, American cultural products, or eating at a McDonald's kind of a thing. Mm. So American fashion brands. So that whole awareness being there. So that's one sec overall, right? Mm. That will continue. Uh, on the strategic levels, yes, a partnership would continue. And due to this whole thing with China, I think a lot of things are now being accelerated or triggered, which otherwise India may not have gotten as closer to the US. I mean, we are closer, but when I say as closer, means much more coordination in defense and security and strategic, uh, you know, these things, stance. So that, that, that is happening. So that's a different... We will continue to have differences also with the U.S. We will have, and that's natural, that's okay, you know. We have differences on your trade matters, on matters of intellectual property, or on matters of, you know, tariffs, on Harley-Davidson, for example. <laughs> okay, so those we will have and we'll keep, you know, pushing each other. There are some issues which are not resolved. G GST has been taken away mm. and we are asked to call it back, but uh, no. So those things will continue because that's the inherent nature of when two systems work together. They have their own lobbies, which they have to, you know, satisfy, figure out. Uh, they, America wants to protect its own farmers or producers or manufacturers or whatever. And we want to. So then it depends, you know. So with the U.S., that will continue. Mm -hmm. uh, what will... Uh, yes, please. What will change is... Uh, the closeness in this space of strategic, more intelligence sharing and all, right? But at the same time, I don't know. I'll uh, see there are a couple of things. One, US wants India very much in its camp, but US wants India as an ally in a mm -hmm. sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like the UK wants. Mm -hmm. But India doesn't want that. India wants to maybe like a be like a France with the US, you know, fine. Sometimes I'll go with you, sometimes I have my own foreign policy. Mm. I have my own vision of how the world should look like. Mm. See, the UK went with the US and everything, how the world looks like, fair enough. UK never came out with any big vision of the world mm. on its own, right? Uh, after, you know, the Second World War. Right. Whereas France really often takes up a deep philosophical and, you know, um, a very futuristic, a very different kind of a take on what is happening in the world mm. or on any issue. So India, to a large extent, in our foreign policy, I always think will be will behave like France down the line with the US. So now, how beneficial can this alliance be for the world? I would think it can be very, 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 very beneficial than what India is bringing so far. And India has to bring some good things to the world. Uh, and in that, the U.S. will partner because U.S. thinks and wants democracy and free and open markets, free spaces, <coughs> sorry, notionally at least. U.S. has no qualms on going and installing dictators and killing uh, world leaders. U.S. has done all of that, okay? Mm -hmm. Maybe still be doing it. Mm -hmm. But at least they uphold the principle sometimes or more times than others of you know, democracy and freedom, so to say. So, India and US will work a lot more in tandem, will have to, or, or in a sense, we will, issues will come up on which US will have to take a decision and we will have to take a decision and very often, our decisions independently taken will be the same. 
right which will further bring us both together mm-hmm. on a uh, on a strategic this thing on uh, on prayer and all it will continue h1 visas blocked and all see those are issues of within the us economy we should understand okay uh, if we can take us to the wto on that let's take us to the wto on that no issues cool fine let's see uh, but uh, we should understand that nations have their own you know uh, interests they would because the world that we live in today i think is changed clearly and that actually is uh, as i mentioned to your campaign on which we are pushing and working is a campaign of live and let live india if it has to take world leadership india has opportunity now mm. to bring the global conversation and say to everyone the us and the un and whoever the guys let us live and let live what it means is that especially also seen the aftermath of corona we have to live with nature with environment we have to let environment live okay so we have to live and let the environment also live similarly nations have to live and let live with each other fine we can draw out each other's red lines but once those red lines are drawn you do your i do my own don't disturb me i won't disturb you that is what's going to happen and the reason i say india should articulate this very very strongly in the world is because our foreign policy so far has been you know the has been couched and the ultimate pinnacle of that was a term in hindi you might very well know of course of course you will vasudev kutumbakam vasudev kutumbakam means or in sanskrit right that the world is a family that's what you know india goes around the world waving guys guys let's get together solve the problem we are a family hmm. no that's the i think that's a that's a that's an ineffective strategy hmm. tell me in a family don't brothers kill each other there in cases the children kill their parent child kills the parent whatever hmm. so family is not the right metaphor i would say hmm. or the right analogy the world is not a family there are a family as a species but our foreign policy should be live and let live that's it okay okay we all live let live no violence we want peace mm. we want peace and happiness let us all live, let live and that goes for animals that goes for environment waters rivers oceans mm. everything around we have so that india has to take forcefully in fact i've been talking about it and writing about it also that that should be and if we say we want to be a wish guru i mean a, a thinker leader philosopher leader right we have to bring some value to the world which will tie things together give a fresh fresh agreed live and let live is a is a old cliche term and all i mean but people have to see it in its right power of the words mm. what it means and if india brings that out more that would be india's gift to the world i'll say should be and even now let's say with the china uh, you know conflict that we are having mm-hmm. i mean that's a different way there we can say to china live and let live or else mm-hmm. so you or jine to varna see mm. you have to live and let live if you will not let me live then i will have i will do something mm. i mean that's the instinct of life in me right okay so but at the same time this i think this messaging makes it and 
if we can drill it down to the children of today yes mm. the key is here and that's our full campaign actually this is on the global level for world leaders to say and what india should do and all but in terms of making it an actuality and making it happen mm. i would really and i'm trying and we are trying is that this philosophy should go down to our children which means in our education systems mm. these ideas should be introduced all across the world all children all across the world should be compulsory taught of course every day and it's a emergency of the species we are talking about okay so half an hour every day or one hour a week or whatever right from age 5 to age 15 for the child and he cannot get his class 10 certificate unless he has a satisfactory grade in compulsory dumbies mm-hmm. and these are will be experiential learnings on compassion humanity uh, you know respect for diversity those things and when these children grow up they will less number of them be prone towards hatred of the other extremism the advantage other of this is also at the schools when this is happening this will reduce bullying in schools mm. bullying is a huge problem now for children and the parents parents don't even know what it right uh so children will be kinder with each other probably or less number of them will be more angry so to say and when so that's one advantage at their formative years and when they grow up the world around them they will make it a more peaceful world and these things are happening in some countries already i mean here in india in delhi we have class on happiness in schools right in denmark uh, the school systems there are uh, you know including courses on empathy as compulsory mm-hmm. uh, in the uk some school systems they are doing some courses on mindfulness for children in the us uh, uh, course on kindness is there so you know all this mix of cetera for all uh, across the world so that's i mean that's a different reason meaning it mm. but coming back to foreign policy that in foreign policy that's what nations have to live with each other and india can take leadership whatever argument they have to make we can make it under that umbrella right well that was amazing uh, ravinder sir and it has been such a privilege to talk to you about these things i think uh, you know a few decades ago the language of diplomacy used to be french but i think uh, now the language has to be uh, live and let live uh, thank you so much for uh, being on this interview and uh, there you go viewers if you have any questions uh, to ask uh, ravinder sir please reach out to us in the comments uh, he's a very accessible person he's he's been such a place in his life but he's still very humble and accessible and uh, well thank you so much <laughs> for being here thank you been a wonderful conversation and yeah absolutely welcome any questions from any of your viewers any follow up thoughts or questions more than happy to answer and once again been a pleasure to be with you sort of all the best thank you thank you so much